Apologies are those strange things that, like a metaphor, can take on various interpretations. What is an apology? I mean, really. Not what is it supposed to be, but what is it? This, of course, can only be answered on a case-by-case basis. Apologies are tricky sometimes, and they can confuse you, make you believe that the offender is truly contrite and would take back what they did, when in most cases, that's just not the case. Some would argue that sometimes an apology shouldn't even be taken literally. I'm sorry. It's just a figure of speech used to lessen the natural reaction to what's about to follow those words. I'm sorry, but our economy is more important than your life. Maybe that one is a little too on the nose, but you get the point. Now, sure, we all have the right to apologize, to actually see something differently from the way we saw it in the offending moment and admit that an act or statement was wrong. Now, I'm always willing to hear what follows when a person leads with, I was wrong. Now, depending on what the act was and whether I believe they should have known better, that's something we have to address on that case-by-case basis thing I was talking about earlier. Because sometimes they're not actually sorry for their actions. They don't really feel like they were wrong, and they do it again, actually. Now, they may be sorry that your response to their behavior was an unwanted response for you, but... They're not actually sorry that they did what they did. This usually sounds like, I'm sorry you feel that way, but, or, I'm sorry you were hurt by what I did. I mean, come on. You might be thinking, I don't need you to feel sorry for my feelings. I need you not to do the things that caused them. And then there are those apologies that fall somewhere in the middle, sure. They wish they didn't have to do something, and they know it did bring about some undesirable reactions. And yeah, they are actually sorry about all this, but it had to be done. This sounds like, I'm sorry for the pain this caused, but it has to be this way. Now sure, it can be so confusing at times, but if you listen, people usually say exactly what they mean. And they usually mean exactly what they say. You just have to listen. Oh, and you especially have to be able to hear those people who either never apologize for anything because they don't believe that they do anything wrong or who stipulate apologies by bringing up what someone else did by comparison in an effort to minimize the impact of their behavior. Now, this sounds like, I'm sorry I did this, but what that guy did was way worse. This type of person is very dangerous. Be very careful with those kinds of people. But the next time you hear someone issue an apology, listen to all of the words within it. Is it a true and genuine admission of guilt and an act of contrition? 
Is it just a few words strung together to satisfy their guilt or a way of going through the motions because it's expected, given their action? Or is it just a way of turning the story on those offended as a way of acknowledging that your feelings are more of the issue than the act they perpetrated to cause those feelings? Just listen. And the next time you have to apologize, be sure you choose your words carefully. I'm Kayana Ebony Brown, and this is a story of music and men. There are some parts of the general D.C. area where I seldom venture. I mean, not that I have anything personal against them. I just never have any business in those parts. Germantown, Maryland is one of those parts. Like, it's too far to be close, but way too close to use as an excuse for being too far. It's just past the outstretched arms of Metro's red line, which means that I'm forced to drive. Ugh. A chore that almost always accompanies a deep sigh with just the thought of it. Plus, that rumor you probably heard about DC having some of the worst traffic in the country is far from hearsay. Even my attempt to avoid it by venturing out on a Sunday at 1.30 p.m. still proved futile. After picking up Lucas, we arrived just before 3 at a sketchy-looking industrial type of place where apparently companies not in the business-to-consumer market but that still needed office space to conduct work were housed. A buzzer sounded, which indicated that we were now allowed to come in. But as soon as we opened the door, the sound of rock rap which could have passed for someone's makeshift interpretation of Limp Biscuit, hit us like a bag of bricks. We were at some type of dirt bike shop, I guess, where you could buy parts, come get your broken bike fixed, or get your stock bike souped up. Before we could process where to go, a guy appeared out of, like, nowhere, yelling apologies for the sound. Uh, let me get that. Let me get that. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. The mix isn't right yet. He said, although I was skeptical about whether the mix was the only problem with it. L, follow me. Follow me. He was overweight, but attempted to hide it with a big T-shirt and even bigger jeans and was probably my age, but his pale skin was weathered. Perhaps a mixture of bad diet, substance abuse, and poor choices in physical activity. And that's not a judgment. I mean, the smell of weed clouded the place, and the half-empty quart of brandy sat near an open toolbox, right beside an empty McDonald's bag. After he cut the music down, he turned back to Lucas, smiled, and said, What up, L? As if they hadn't seen each other in ages. Lucas gave a hesitant smile as the two smacked hands. 
Um, Mario, this is Kenya. Kenya, this is um my cousin, Mario. Oh yeah, the record label chick, right? Embarrassed by his cousin's unprofessionalism, Lucas gave a hesitant smile while sneaking in a glance over at me to check my demeanor before responding. <coughs> um, yeah, yeah. Mario extended his hand to me, and I accepted the handshake and returned the, yeah, nice to meet you, pleasantries. So, um, Elle told me that you wanted to talk about some business stuff with me. Considering where I should start, I just started. Uh, yeah, um, well, see. I'm not exactly sure how much Lucas told you about his and my relationship. You uh, was manager, right? Like, he said, cutting me off conclusively. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm not a manager. I own the record label that he's signed to. I corrected. Well, you tell him what to do, what to sing, how to sing it. <laughs> Sound like a manager to me, which is why I don't have one. <laughs> He looked at Lucas, expecting him to join in on the joke. Lucas gave another half-hearted smirk, but neglected to give a full laugh. Now, of course, I thought to myself, which is also why your music probably sounds the way it does. But of course, I wouldn't say this out loud. Listen, um, I'm not here to do the whole like semantics thing, okay? I just came to ask, respectfully, that you reconsider using Lucas's vocals on that song you did with him. What? He asked, very confused. <laughs> like, fucking why? Like, why would I do that? Already seeing that this wasn't going as easy as I'd hoped, I shot Lucas a disdainful glare, and he folded into himself like a disobedient puppy. Because, and this again is with all due respect, um, the quality and the content of the song does not, it, it doesn't meet my approval. <laughs> and instead of taking me seriously, Mario just interrupted with laughter right in my face and ended it with a long, lingering, <laughs> Wow. <laughs> he looked at Lucas, still in disbelief, and then back to me trying to find it in himself to calm down and continue this conversation seriously, he held back his laughter, looked at me, and said, Okay, so, um, <laughs> let, me, um let me get this straight. Since you don't like the song, he can't be on it. I didn't answer right away. I just allowed my straight-faced pause, accompanied, of course, by a non-blinking stare right into his eyes to tell him exactly what I was thinking at the moment. I didn't appreciate being laughed at and not being taken seriously, and certainly not by someone like him. Finally, although my expression had already given away the answer to his question, I said anyway, no, he can't. Still holding back a smile, Mario simply nodded and considered how he was going to proceed. Well, you know what? He said, and then looked at me without a trace of that smile in sight. That's between you and him. <sighs> Look, 
I reasoned. I know how much of an inconvenience this is, so I'm here to try and, like, work something out with you. Mario stared at the floor now, avoiding looking at me. Because, I mean, I really cannot have Lucas anywhere near a song like that. Like, all right. He cut in, calmly nodding. All right, I'll work with you. <laughs> really? Oh, oh, my God. Thank you so much. Like, really, thank you. I said, relieved. I let out two lungs full of air and relaxed my shoulders a bit. I was so happy that he understood where I was coming from. Sure, he was a little hostile and kind of disrespectful in the beginning, but I could see that he was starting to come around. Like, seriously, again, thank you so much. I mean, considering the time it'll take to find somebody else, record them, mix them, master another track, uh, I think, I think a thousand sounds fair. I wasn't sure if I'd heard him correctly, so I raised my eyebrows expecting some clarification. That's a thousand dollars. Oh, yeah. No, I'd heard him correctly. What? No, I mean, cousin or not, this is business. Okay, I paid this motherfucker $500 to sing that hook because he needed to pay his rent. So if you don't want him anywhere near my music, then you need to figure out a fucking way to get him paid singing that soft-ass Jason Mraz shit you like so much so he won't have to come to me. What more could I say? How was I supposed to argue with this? As Lucas and I walked back to my car, in silence, shouting across the parking lot at Lucas was Mario. Hey, I'll catch you on PS tonight, right? The car ride back into town was, obviously, quiet. But I guess the good thing was, there wasn't any traffic in sight. TK wanted to be at my place when the delivery guy arrived with the vinyl prints for her forthcoming release, but the delivery date coincided with a performance at the Rembrandt, an arts venue in Upper Northwest, that she was co-headlining with a few other major local artists. Now, normally, the day of a performance, especially right before she was set to go on stage, she was in flow state as she called it. Totally tapped into her artistic place without a single thought about anything other than what she was about to do on that stage. So, I should have known something was up when she came over to me backstage just minutes before she was set to take the stage and started chit-chatting. You know, I was thinking, I'm really, really excited about this project. Like, honestly, I actually think, I think it's my best work. I was confused. Was she talking about her next album? Really? Right now? So I asked, you talking about The Awakening? Yeah, I know 
you got the delivery today and I'm like, I'm kind of excited about it, to be honest with you. This statement sounded incomplete to me and I waited patiently for her to add, but, before going into some other thought. But why'd you only get 500 copies? I didn't respond because she would know very soon why I decided to order fewer copies than we had originally planned. She would know because we planned to talk about it after the show, not before it. I'm excited, but I don't feel the urge to go out and like sell copies out the trunk of my car like like I've done before. I feel like Honestly, I kind of feel like we're beyond that right now. I mean, we're we're like two young, intelligent business people who need a better sales strategy, right? Than one that's barely like a step above panhandling. I completed. And then I sighed. (sighs) We've been consumed by the same thoughts, but neither of us had shared a solution. I had, however, come up with an idea but it thus far been too insecure about it to share it with her. That day with my mentor, January, something she said sparked the thought and I shared it with her just to see what she would say. Now January thought that my idea was brilliant, risky, of course, but brilliant. But I had spent the last few days or so trying to figure out how I was gonna sell it to TK in a way that she would buy into it. Standing backstage with just a few moments before she was set to take the stage was not exactly the time or the place to try and get this point across. I mean, I admit, this part is always the hardest for me. Look, I know I'm not the business person in this relationship, so can you please explain to me why doing something the same way we did it before is a bad thing? I sighed, trying to consider whether I should start or wait. I looked over at the stage to see if the group that was performing was anywhere near done, and since it appeared as if they still had some time left, I decided to go ahead and try to explain it to her. Well... Because the difference between a business and a hobby is that a business runs even when the owner is not there. I want this to be a business, but if I have to be there every time in order for a sale to take place, then I almost didn't want to say it, but it needed to be said. Then after all these years, I'm afraid that this, it's it's not a business. It's not, not yet. And that, honestly, it bothers me. Well, I'm open if you have any better ideas, like seriously. And I looked at her to see if she was serious about this, because I did have an idea. She sensed my gaze and looked at me curiously. What? She asked with a bit of skepticism. So I took my time before I started. Listen, I know you just quit your job and I know you have a family to support. And honestly, if after you think about what I have to tell you, you feel strongly that you don't want to do it, 
I could see that she was starting to look a bit fearful of what I might say. She barely breathed and hadn't blinked once since I started this intro. I'll understand. And I'll just have to come up with something else. But I really, really think this is the best way to go. Uh, excuse me? Interrupted a girl wearing headphones connected to a walkie-talkie. Taj Kamal, you're up in five. Follow me. TK looked at me, smiled, and said, Get your camera ready. Again, this incredibly cryptic statement added to her unusual behavior just baffled me. But, as I'd promised, as soon as she took the stage, I held up my phone and hit record. Alright, so I wrote this song especially for y'all. I just wrote it last night, so my band don't even know it yet. I'm gonna spit this acapella. Can I do that? And the crowd cheered and whistled enthusiastically, encouraging her to go on. Alright, this one is called Cuff Your Dollar. And as if they knew the song already, her saying that title got them a little more riled up. Then, like gasoline to an open flame, she opened her jacket to reveal her T-shirt underneath with the statement, Cuff Your Dollar, covering her entire torso. And they went crazy. She went on passionately performing the new track, just her poetic rhymes, more literal with this than her normal metaphorical lyrics, bouncing off the black walls in a suddenly silent room of over 1,500 people hanging on to her every word. Let me give you a little more context to all of this. There's a huge corporation called Max Dollar Inc., the same company that owns two retail brands, The Pretty Penny, a retailer known for reasonably priced convenience products, and the dollar store. Yes, you heard that correctly. There is a literal retail business called the dollar store. Of course, this one was only located in certain neighborhoods and it only carried certain types of products. I guess the good thing is that everything in the joint costs a dollar, sometimes less. The bad news is that you really wouldn't want to pay a penny more than that for this stuff. Of course, unlike their pretty penny brand, nothing in the dollar store was fresh or name brand. The products were bargain or generic, and the food was all packaged, processed, and could be preserved for only God knows how long. And if you were lucky enough to find a piece of produce, you better believe it wasn't organic. It was the kind of reject stuff you give to rejected people. Now sometime in the last month, Max Dollar Inc., a normally inconspicuous corporation that didn't even advertise for its brands, avoided what should have been the national spotlight when Amos Parker, a 42-year-old black man, died inside of one of its pretty penny stores. Now, of course, they simply could not overlook his attempts to swipe a beverage without proper punishment, but no one could have known about his pre-existing conditions. 
especially considering he'd been homeless for the better part of the last decade. But in what appeared to be some form of citizen's arrest, instead of calling the police for the attempted theft of the $1 beverage, the store's manager and a security guard chose to punish the man by taking the beverage he was attempting to steal and keeping him in an empty office in the back until he learned his lesson, I suppose. Perhaps someone like him might have fared better where he belonged, in the dollar store. He had no business in the pretty penny. So either it was true what they said, that he died by committing suicide while in their custody, or someone in that store did something to cause his death. Either way, it didn't look good for Max Dollar, Inc., or its bougie bodega. Now, you would think this sort of thing might have sparked outrage citywide, but it barely made the local newspaper. Okay, so what did this have to do with TK directly? Well, nothing on the surface, except she was now one of DC's higher-profile music artists because of that recent Kennedy Center performance. So... As a direct result of having made good impressions at that event, she was asked to perform at this Goodwill event sponsored by, you guessed it, Max Dollar Inc. Now, obviously, they wouldn't promote this show as anything having to do with or inspired by the events surrounding Amos Parker. But the considerable donations to area food banks and homeless shelters made it kind of obvious. When I presented it to her, she accepted without any question, probing, or pushback. But I should have known better. I'll admit, although I'm not one who's generally motivated by money, when you need it as badly as we did for our fledgling artistic venture, it can become a blinding distraction. But I should have known better. She took direct aim at how disgusting American capitalism is, putting money over human lives. And in the second verse, she went after the politicians who perpetuate this by ignoring simple and basic needs of people who got them where they are. The entire song set flame to the idea of the power of the American dollar. I don't know if I breathed during that entire four minutes and 42 second performance. And at that very moment, I was Jed York in 2016. See, it was back in 2016 at the start of the NFL season when San Francisco 49ers star quarterback Colin Kaepernick decided to sit during the playing of the national anthem. It went unnoticed for a couple weeks until the media took notice. After talking with a member of the military, he changed his peaceful protest from sitting to kneeling. His goal was to use his platform to bring attention to injustice in this country. Perhaps rightfully so, as a black man, he didn't feel like this country had earned its right to have him, or really any black person, stand and pledge their allegiance to it. Now, this sparked 
outrage for various reasons, many of which were just silly distractions from the true cause, dragging the military into a fight that it had nothing to do with. Something, I'm sure, they were quite used to. Oh, Jed York, incidentally, was the owner and CEO of that San Francisco franchise. Yeah, I imagine he had trouble catching his breath that entire football season. Now, putting the constitutional right to protest aside, and even ignoring the fact that this was art and perhaps the ideal place to do this, there was just something about protesting at work that just felt, honestly, I don't know how I feel about it. And as I stood there watching TK skate around the stage wearing a shirt that, for all intents and purposes, said, fuck your dollar, I couldn't help but also notice the max dollar executives whispering among themselves in the back of the room. A few of the politicians who were in attendance slipped out of the room one by one, and the mostly white but considerably left-leaning audience felt compelled to, quote, do something about this. Another portion of the audience felt betrayed by an artist using this stage for this type of agenda. Perhaps because it didn't have music behind it, it felt packaged more like a direct attack on Max Dollar Inc. and the politicians in attendance instead of an artistic musical expression. I don't know. But what I do know is that it violated something in our contract and we didn't get the full compensation for the performance, as I was anticipating. And for your information, we didn't even get half. In fact, we, we actually were lucky. They allowed us to keep the deposit. Later that evening, as we sat together sharing a meal after the show, TK apologized to me. But only for taking me off guard, not for what she did. And as I listened closely to the words of this apology, I noticed how she re-emphasized that she was not sorry for bringing attention to these kinds of atrocities and that she would do it again. She didn't say it, but I assume this meant she'd do it again even if it meant losing money, a substantial amount of money. And again, I, I simply listened Um, I neither agreed nor disagreed with her actions or its intention. I understood why she felt the need to do this, but for business reasons, did I wish there was another way? Absolutely. So I knew that I had to find a way to satisfy her need to do something with my need to run a business, which at this point didn't even seemed like two things that could even coexist. This episode of Of Music and Men was written and produced by me, Kayana. Now, most of the music in this episode was provided by Filmstro, arranged and designed for this episode by yours truly. 
Now, we had a track called Dig Deep by R.W. Smith. And then we had Hang Time by Unminus. And closing out the episode is Mona Wanderlick, Cream Soda. Music for the word of the episode is by Scott Buckley. For information on these artists and how you can support their efforts, visit the show notes in your podcast app or go to ofmusicandmen.com slash podcast and select this episode. And just a little disclaimer, if you're on Spotify, the show notes look a little wonky. So please go to ofmusicandmen.com and select this episode for the, to get your full show notes. If you would like to have your music featured on the show, check out our website for more information on how you can submit. Now, of course, Of Music and Men is much more than just a podcast. The novella series is available in online bookstores. And if you wish to have yourself a physical copy, you can get that on our website at ofmusicandmen.com, where you can also get T-shirts and like other kinds of cool merch. Now, don't forget to subscribe at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever it is you prefer to listen to podcasts. And remember to rate and review. I'd love to hear what you think. Lastly, connect with us on Patreon, where you can become part of this project and its journey and help it to grow into everything that it was meant to be. Make sure to share this some way, somehow, with at least one of your friends. And follow of Music and Men everywhere online. And when you do, please don't hesitate to reach out. Artists and entrepreneurs are a very unique type. We face lots of rejection, almost too often for comfort. So whether you're a seasoned business owner or creator aspiring to be one, or you're simply just here to hear a great story, I always want to give you something to ponder until next time. Today's word is from John Wooden, legendary UCLA basketball coach. Things turn out best for the people who make the best of the way things turn out. Now, of course, so much happens in our lives that we cannot anticipate. But what we can do is set our minds to make the best of any situation. Now, I, for one, was one of those people who made, I think I've mentioned this before, made a lot of lists and vision boards and things like that. And it was fun at the time. Uh, I don't do it as much anymore. I I do think a lot about the things that I want and try to focus on uh, positive outcomes and all of that good stuff. But I don't I don't think I do that as much as far as making the vision board thing uh, too much anymore, because that can set you up to like despise or have some negative feelings about the way things ultimately turn out. Because, yeah, sometimes we can use the power of imagination or vision and have things come turn out exactly the way that we want it to. But I mean, come on, let's be honest, that does not always happen. So when you set your mind to something in a specific way, especially the how of it all, like I want this to happen and this is how I want it to happen, there can be a lot of disappointment in that. So one of the best things you can do is take John Wooden's advice and make the best of the way that things ultimately do turn out. Again, you have no control over the results, but what you do have control over is 
your process, the work that you put in, how you wake up every day, and even the, the mindset part, how you think about unexpected results or undesirable uh, results, that's probably the only real thing that you have total control over. Uh, even though it doesn't feel like it all the time, you do have control over that. So take John Wooden's advice, make the best of the way that things ultimately do turn out. And I promise you that along the way, you will get used to shifting your focus from results driven and turning your focus to process driven and you'll have a much better journey than those who have to have it their way all the time.